First Peter chapter one, verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. And our subject this morning is actively anticipating Christ the Lord, the active anticipation of Christ, his blessings and eternal glory. And I hope to begin uh, a series of studies in this first letter of Peter. Peter, named by Christ as the rock or stone. It was his initial profession of faith, thou art the Christ, that was the rock. Not Peter personally, he was far from being a rock. But as the Lord dealt with him, as he recovered from his denial of Christ, as he was filled with the Holy Spirit and blessed, appointed to be the first Christian preacher of the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost, so it became evident that Christ was working in him to make him increasingly a rock for the faith, not the foundation of the faith, not the first pope, but an example. And he went to his ultimate martyrdom as one who was firm as a rock in his testimony to the risen Lord and his proclamation of Christ. Peter, he describes himself as an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ. And you know that we hold that the initial apostles with the addition of the Apostle Paul, the one born out of time, were the only people ever entitled to describe themselves as apostles. The office of apostle did not continue after this initial stage of the church. And as I mentioned before, that is why there were no instructions in the New Testament for the recognition of and the appointment of an apostle, as there are for pastors and elders and deacons, those ongoing teachers in the Lord's house, there are clear instructions and qualifications given for their appointment, but not for apostles and not for prophets because they were not to continue. An apostle was somebody who received his commission directly from the risen Lord. Nobody today receives a commission directly from the risen Lord. Anyone who calls himself an apostle is telling you something about himself, that he doesn't fully understand the word of God, and he doesn't understand what he's saying or what he's doing. Peter, an apostle, commissioned personally and directly by the Lord to be one sent 
by him. And in Peter's case, to be the author of a gospel, the gospel of Mark. Mark wrote it, Peter gave it to him. It is the record of Peter. You remember how the Lord Jesus Christ said to the twelve disciples that when the Holy Spirit came, he would remind them of everything that Christ said and did because they were to be his witnesses. They were to record it. They were to complete under the inspiration of the Spirit the New Testament scriptures. They were special men. And as special men, they had to be authenticated. And so they received from Christ the powers to heal. Everybody didn't receive that in the New Testament. Only the apostles. And it seems to have extended to several intimate members of the apostolic circle who worked with them and under them. But it went no further. It was by the hands of the apostles that signs and wonders were done. We look at the New Testament data, and it isn't everybody. Time after time, such as when the Apostle Paul healed the lad who fell out of a window. Nobody else could heal him, only an apostle, such as when Peter healed. No one else could heal those people and restore life to them, only apostles. Only the apostles did the signs and wonders. And why? Because it was the apostles who had to be authenticated so that the people would know these are those who are inspired of God in their teaching. Their, the apostolic teaching was attested as true and inspired and from God. Once the scriptures are complete and the age of the apostles passed, there is no fresh authoritative revelation from God. The canon of scripture is complete. It is intact. God speaks to us, reminding us of duties, by the Spirit convicting us of sinful things, but not to reveal to us authoritative doctrine. That is all complete and perfect within the pages of Holy Scripture. So we do not, as so many of our charismatic friends, we do not have to be misled by a thousand and one revelations received by men today. Somebody gets up and says, God spoke to me, and he said such and such a thing. And vulnerable but well-meaning souls say, really, did he? Oh, well, I must accept that. It is authoritative. No, it isn't, if it isn't in the scripture. That's God's complete and perfect revelation, the yardstick of truth, settles all arguments and debates, delivered once for all. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout the aliens, the people who don't belong, the foreigners, scattered, dispersed throughout these regions of modern Turkey. Here are churches in the north, 
and the east and the center, not the south, of modern Turkey. They were all represented in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. People from these very places heard the gospel back then. Many were no doubt saved and took the gospel back to their provinces, the places where they lived. And maybe Peter, this is what we generally think, Peter was the evangelist in these regions. That's why he writes to them. He's known to them. Paul evangelized so many places, but these places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, they probably are the places evangelized by Peter. Can't be certain, but very likely. Hence his special pastoral interest in them. But look at these words. The strangers scattered, the foreigners dispersed. No doubt, to some extent, this is meant literally. Because there were Jewish people who'd been expelled from their land. Because they were Christians. Now they're scattered. But I think too Peter means it figuratively. All of you Gentiles in those regions who have been saved. You too, though you're in your home country, your homeland. You can be described as a foreigner. An alien. Living in a strange place. That's the truth about Christian people. We are all strangers and foreigners and pilgrims and aliens in our own country or our adopted country. That's the truth. We don't make roots here. We don't settle here. By God's blessing, we try to do good works and be good citizens and help as we can but we're always aware we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're the people of God. This earth is not our place. So we don't buy the top of the range car. We don't live in the absolute topmost places, the palace houses. We're not dependent upon material things and fulfillment. We're the Lord's. And we live modestly and reasonably. We don't make roots here so that this world becomes our all in all because our eyes are fixed on heavenly things and eternal things. And so it is to us too, as well as Jews, dispersed to Gentile Christians that Peter says, the strangers, the foreigners, the aliens, scattered in lands that are not strictly theirs. And then we come to the second verse and we begin properly. Oh, we should love the entire Godhead. Think of that, friends. I love the Saviour, you say, because he died on Calvary for me. The Father, oh, I love him, but I don't understand him. He is God and Christ too is God. And they are one mysteriously. But I can identify with Christ. This is sometimes how Christians think. But almighty God, I respect him and reverence him, the Father. But he never took a body and so I can't relate to him. Ah, says Peter in this verse. This is going to be a verse about the Trinity. 
you must love and feel indebtedness. It will mightily help you and lift you up towards the entire Godhead. And so here, he apportions blessings to us, to each member of the Godhead. Peter, you think of him as a fisherman, became a marvelous preacher. Well, the Spirit of God is involved here, but when we look at uh, Acts 2 in the Pentecostal sermon, this man is a marvel, we say. The way he's put all this together, he must have been preaching for 40 years. This is a sermon not only full of truth, but experience in the way in which it's structured and put in everything about it. No, it was his first sermon. So there is a blend here, not only of the inspiration of the Spirit, but God using a man's natural inherent capacities. But Peter was not only a preacher, he was a theologian. And here in First Peter, verse 2, look at it. Just take it slowly. Don't read it quickly. You'll miss it. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It was God the Father to whom election is attributed. Of course, it's all the Godhead. This is the mystery of God. And yet, Especially in a mysterious sense, it is the act of the Father. Oh, the Father isn't so mysterious. Before the foundation of the world, the Father set his love upon us and determined that in spite of our waywardness and sin, the day would come when the Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds regenerate us and draw us to Christ. The Father was in this. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then look at the Spirit. The order is not the order we're accustomed to, but look at the second term, through sanctification of the Spirit, through the regenerating, drawing, transforming work of the Spirit, we were born again. And then, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know what the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ signifies? More than the washing of Christ. We'll come to it, hopefully, in a few moments. Let's take these phrase by phrase. Elect, chosen by God the Father. How were we chosen? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And immediately you come to the word foreknowledge. There are many friends who want to explain away election. Ah, they say, God elected us when he foresaw that we would freely and voluntarily turn to him. God foresaw that there would be something clever in us, something wise in us, 
something to be commended in us in that we decided to choose him and turn to him and come to him. So after all, God's election isn't his election. After all, God's choosing isn't his choosing. He only chose in response to our choice. Well, that's to make nonsense of the passage. Because God's choosing comes first. Elect, chosen. That's an act of God. He did it. Not because we did it first. He loved us first and chose us. Now, what about the word foreknowledge? What does that mean? Well, as it is used here by Peter, just as it, as it is used in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, it doesn't mean simply forecasting, foreseeing, foreknowing. It means foredetermining. God foreknew us in the sense that he joined himself to us. He knew us in a positive, special way. He knew us and created his possession of us before the foundation of the world. It is an equivalent word to elect. He elected, he chose. And the equivalent word by for pre-knowing us. It's an act of God. That's how it's used in the Acts of the Apostles. Same words, speaking of the death of Christ and how he was taken by human hands and crucified and slain according to the predetermination, the predeterminate will and foreknowledge of God. It's used as God's advance action. And that's how it's used here. If you choose to interpret foreknowledge as God simply foreseeing our act, then you do away with the word chosen. And the sentence no longer makes any sense. And this only accords with all the teaching of the New Testament. The problem we have with God choosing and electing a people for himself is this, that our fallen human heart and our idea of fairness says, is it fair? What about the people who are not elected? Is it fair for God to choose some, a great host that cannot be numbered? and not others? Well, the answer to that is that everything that God does is fair. We cannot challenge God. He is so fair and so just and so loving. The best way I can put it across is this. God's mercy is for everyone and nobody will have it. Everyone rejects him. Everyone spurns him, including those who are ultimately saved. Every human being 
rejects God. Such is our sin and our hostility. You could say what is fair is that nobody should be saved. What is beyond fairness and infinitely more fair and amazing beyond fairness is that in spite of that, God should determine to overrule in the case of millions of people and in spite of their rejection of them, bring them to himself and show his mercy. That's the only insight I can give you. But this is the teaching of the scripture. Now, if you look at it personally, you get the point at once. What I mean is this. I speak for myself. Did I make a decision, an intelligent, sensible decision, to choose God? When I think of it in my own case, I immediately say, and I'm sure it's the same for all of you, no, I didn't. I never did. In my case, it was all of grace. God broke through my stubborn, sinful, rebellious, darkened heart. God broke through and he woke me up. It really, he worked in such a gentle way that I came to see my plight and I chose him. But it was only because... He did it. He brought me to that state and condition where I saw my sin and I, as it were, fell on my knees and pleaded for help and trusted in Christ. I would never have done it if he had not moved in me. So we can see it for ourselves. We might be, we might say, I don't think election is fair, but I know it happened to me. And so it is the case for every sincere believer. The Lord did it in your heart. Well, we're making very slow progress this morning, but we have to take the word of God as it is. Elect, chosen, according to the foreknowledge, the determination of God beforehand to know us. The foreknowledge of God the Father. Thank the Father for his overruling determination to save you. And then the second, through sanctification of the Spirit. The word sanctification means the setting apart of the Spirit. When the Spirit began to work in your heart to bring you under conviction of sin, to illuminate your mind and show you Christ and show you the plan and the way of salvation, he was setting you apart for a life of holiness, a life of striving after holiness, sanctification. Is that how we live? I was saved by the Holy Spirit of God but I do worldly things and I want worldly things and I follow worldly things. This is getting completely mixed up. I was set apart for God. I must remain set apart for God. 
and distinctive unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. When you come to Christ and you trust in your shed blood on Calvary and you repent of your sin and you believe your sins are washed away, that doesn't mean you can live as you like. For some people it does seem to mean that. There are some people, I don't say here, but there are some people that say I'm a Christian and holiness doesn't seem to matter to them. Well, all you can say is they couldn't possibly have been really saved. Because when you're really saved and forgiven by Christ, there is put within you a new nature and a new heart and you begin to hate your sin and loathe your sin and you wish you could avoid that sin and you look to God and you strive daily for holiness of life. We're strivers, friends. Obedience. This term sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, I wonder if we fully understood it. When the people were sanctified under the law of Moses, ceremonially, then blood was, the sacrificial blood was sprinkled, as Moses did, upon the people. What did that symbolize? Well, it symbolized that God would forgive and God would cleanse sin. But it symbolized more. You are a people, it said, who are marked by God. Look, the blood is sprinkled upon you. It not only symbolizes washing, I've got spots of it on my garment. I was near the act of sprinkling. When I undergo a ceremony of sanctification, the priest sprinkles upon me. I'm spotted. I'm marked. There was a message in that that spoke to you. I'm not just clean in this ceremony. I go away with the marks on me that has ceremonially cleansed me. And that's what Peter means. You are sprinkled with the blood of Christ, not just washed, but this is an ongoing influence. I came to Christ, I repented of my sin, I believed solely in Calvary, I was cleansed by his blood, and that blood is always on me. Oh, I must live to be worthy of it. I cannot deserve his blessing but I must respond and fight against sin and seek his help. But I'm under his blood. His blood stays with me. There are flecks of it, as it were, so upon me. It will keep me clean all the way to glory and forever. The blood of Christ shed for me isn't just for a moment. It's a permanent influence and mark and cleansing that's what Peter means it's so reassuring not not. I'm under the blood of Christ so I can cut corners and live as I like but once forgiven forgiven eternally now we repent every day of new sins 
but we are actually cleansed once and forever. When we seek day by day the cleansing of, of the Lord, we seek his cleansing away of the memory and the influence of that sin we've just forgiven. Our sins are actually forgiven now and forever. So you have in this second verse, every member of the Trinity, chosen by God the Father, set aside for holiness by the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood, the mark of Christ, his forgiving love permanently upon you. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Grace, well, you know well, it means by the free, undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God, you are blessed. May that be so for you. Grace is the manner by which God blesses us. The method. What method does he adopt for our blessing? The method of giving us a free gift. He blesses us freely. What is the gift? It is peace. Grace unto you and peace. That's the difference. Grace is the mechanism by which it comes a free, as a free gift. Peace is the actual gift itself, what it is. Peace with God, reconciliation with God, walking with him, knowing with him. Grace is the machinery. Peace is the actual fruit, the gift. There's no tautology, no reposition, repetition here. And then verse 3, friends, uh, this blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a, a, a special word, blessed. Worship and adoration and praise is our vital response. Blessed in the New Testament very often uh, translates the Greek word which means supremely happy. It doesn't here. It translates another word which means worthy to be praised is. Worthy of blessing is. Blessed be the God and Father literally means worthy of your adoration and your praise is. And it calls us to worship. Worship him. Adore him. You know, today you notice in the contemporary Christian worship movement, there are lots and lots of hymns that rather read like choruses, very simply, which are about Calvary and atonement and my blessing. And you, just, just to glance at a few of them, you notice the absence of actual adoration of God, worship of him and his mighty attributes, and thankfulness to him for who he is. It's all about us. But here's Peter's words, worthy to be praised, worthy to be adored, is God. That's the meaning of the word blessed in this case. Think of that, friends. 
when you begin your prayers. You can pray emergency prayers. Something happens, it's an emergency. By all means, cry out to the Lord for help. But in your more formal prayers, do try to start with God and just worship him and adore him and think of his attributes and his decrees and his mighty acts and wonder at him, the living God, worthy to be adored, to be praised, to be esteemed, is God. That's the word of Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems to be the Trinity coming through again. But Peter is helping us. Yes, I understand what you say. Election comes from the Father. So I can thank him and praise him for that. But he's still a mysterious member of the Godhead to me. Then Peter helps you a little further here. Do you follow his reasoning? Worthy to be praised is the God, and here's how you identify him, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know about him, and you read of him in the Gospels. And don't forget that he told the disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So that's why Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you think the Father is a mystery, think of Christ. Because he revealed the Father. He is distinct from the Father and yet one with the Father. And all the loving kindness and power that you see in the Gospels, in the life of Christ, are showing you the heart and the attributes of the Father. Did I say the heart of the Father? Now here's a subject in itself. We're told here about God choosing. We're told in this passage, we shall come to it ultimately, about God's love, the feelings of God, the feelings of God. Do you understand about the feelings of God? Just perhaps a small word, a small digression. Some years ago, somebody asked me about something they'd seen and they showed me an article by a lady who was a lady preacher online who has a great following. As you know, biblically, lady preachers shouldn't really be. They may mean well, but they shouldn't be preaching. But that's another subject. However, this lady preacher had written, when you suffer, God suffers with you. And she was urging Christians to take comfort on this basis. When you have grief, you think of this, God is grieved with you. Well, the lady didn't understand her doctrine. She didn't understand the doctrines in the word of God about God and suffering and God. 
Now the uh, Westminster Baptist Confessions, the Savoy Confessions, all with one voice declare that God has no parts or passions such as human beings have. He's created humans. And so comes about the doctrine which we call the doctrine of God's impassibility. Not impossibility, impassibility, which comes from Latin. And it simply means God cannot suffer. Never forget that. He doesn't have passions like human, bodily passions. God cannot suffer. Now this is a great theme because God does have feelings. The scripture is full of them. He loves. He loved the people who would be saved. He loves them with unchanging, unfaltering love. He has wrath Indignation against sin. God is indignant against all sin and rebellion and disobedience. But he cannot suffer. God's feelings are pure and holy feelings that never change. They do not drive him like human feelings drive human beings. A human being may love someone, but in a moment of hurt or grief or offence, may momentarily hate that person and act against them. Our feelings can drive us and make our decisions for us. Our feelings can rule and carry us away. Not so with God. His love, his kindness, his indignation and wrath against sin. These are fixed and infinite and permanent. And they are in constant league with his power and his wisdom. When God makes an eternal decision, and that's impossible language when you analyze it, but it's just for us. When God makes a decree or a decision in eternity, it arises from the united operation of all his attributes, his infallibility, his infinite wisdom, his infinite kindness, his infinite indignation against sin. The feelings of God never act independently of all his attributes. So his immeasurable holiness and everything is involved in every decision. Our feelings cut loose from our wisdom and our reason, and our knowledge, and act alone, and drive us. God's feelings are pure, and consistent, and perfect, and not reactive. He is never petty. He never acts out of a wounded spirit. He is not capricious or arbitrary. 
is wonderfully, everlastingly perfect and consistent. And he cannot suffer. If God were to suffer like we suffer, it would change him. And he is unchangeable, immutable, serene, above it all. Though he feels he cannot suffer. When you suffer, you lose something. You're hurt, sometimes maimed by suffering. That's human. Maybe understandable grief, not sinful, but it's human. So God cannot suffer. What about Christ? Ah, don't you see? Don't you understand the wonder of the incarnation and of Christ being our saviour? Because God cannot suffer and is eternally serene and happy and the same, in order for an atonement to be made for us and for suffering to be sustained on our behalf, Christ had to become incarnate and assume human nature so that in his united divine human nature, wonderfully united and one, because of that element of humanity, he could suffer just as he could be wounded by the nails through his hands and feet and the spear thrust into his side so he could suffer because he wore humanity. The amazing condescension of Christ. He was ready to come down, down, down into our flesh and experience in order to suffer on our behalf what we should suffer on account of our sin. And there was another reason why he suffered. The scripture tells us so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest who understood his people. He suffered on earth so when we suffer, God doesn't suffer with us. But if we pray, Christ remembers what it was to suffer on earth. And he has a sympathy for us because he's been touched by it. That's the wonder of the incarnation. God cannot suffer as God that God, even God, could suffer when in Christ he assumed human nature and took it upon himself. There's a wonderful hymn, there's several of them actually, which express this so beautifully. And I just read you a few verses. It's a hymn by Michael Bruce based on Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. It's not quite a paraphrase. It's an amplification or expansion of those words. But listen to this. Though now ascended up on high, 
He bends on earth the brother's eye, partaker of the human name. He knows the frailty of our frame. Christ is now glorified. He cannot suffer in glory, but he remembers what it was to suffer in human limitations and flesh. Our fellow sufferer yet retains a fellow feeling of our pains and still remembers in the skies his tears and agonies and cries. In every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows had a part. He sympathizes with our grief and to the sufferer sends relief. If you ask him, he understands. He's your great high priest and he will bless and sustain and help you. He doesn't suffer in glory, but he can understand. With boldness, therefore, at the throne, let us make all our sorrows known and ask the aid of heavenly power to help us in the evil hour that him understands the impassibility of God. He cannot suffer. He has feelings, pure, consistent, unchanging, wonderful, that unite with all his attributes in every decision he takes and never supersede them or overrule them. But he understands our suffering by Christ having come and taken our punishment and our place and suffered this world on our behalf. Well, blessed be the God, certainly worthy is he to be praised and worshipped, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, it was all by grace and mercy that you were ever saved, that you ever came to Christ, hath begotten us again, caused us to be born again unto a lively hope. I meant to say more about that, but our time is up. We'll continue another time. Do we have an ongoing active, living hope day by day in eternal life and glory. What a difference 